Well, today we continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. We have completed the Beatitudes, and now we move into the body of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes reveal for us what is a Christian. Sometimes I have people ask the question, now, what is a Christian? Is someone a Christian because they are a Baptist, because they've been baptized, because they've been confirmed? What is a Christian? And the Beatitudes reveal a Christian to us. First of all, it is someone who recognizes their spiritual condition, that they are poor in spirit. As a result of that recognition, then they mourn and they humbly then come to Christ. After they have come to Christ, then they begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. They begin to have a hunger, a thirst for the things of God. And then they are merciful in their dealings with others. They are living lives of purity. Barclay wrote, the Christian must be the person who holds aloft the standard of absolute purity in speech, in conduct, and even in thought. So then after a person becomes a follower of Jesus, then they are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They are living lives of purity, and they become peacemakers even though they are persecuted by those who do not understand their commitment. So if we want to understand what is a Christian, it is revealed to us in the Beatitudes. That is a Christian. Now, as a Christian lives out the Beatitudes, as you begin living out the Beatitudes, then people see you, and you then are a reflection of Christ. So now then we move into the body. We have completed the Beatitudes. We move into the body. So look in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 13, and these are some of the more familiar verses within the sermon. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus here says to the Christian, the one who has committed his or her life to him, you are the light of the world. Now, he didn't say you should be. He didn't say it would be nice if you were. He said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Now, the implication when he says that is that the world is corrupting. Now, we know that to be true. Every time we turn on the news and watch it, every time we read the newspaper, every time we listen to the radio, every time we are in a conversation with someone, we are reminded that we live in a world that is corrupt. It seems to me that pornography, for instance, is increasing and civility is decreasing. We are accepting pornography while we are seeing very little civility in our life. 
Probably the most sacred of relationships is the relationship between the parent and the child. And yet we hear on a regular basis about children being abused by their parents or by adults. Our world is corrupting. That's the point that Jesus is making. That is something that we have to understand. We live in a corrupt world. Even when we talk about politics, we see corruption. Isn't it strange that we elect someone as an officer, and then when they are in office, oftentimes they seem to be someone totally different? There is corruption in politics. There is corruption in government. There is corruption in business. And even in some churches, there is corruption. There is crime. So the point that Christ is making when he says that you are the salt, the implication is you live in a world that is corrupt. And the Christian is the preservative. It is probably early in the morning when Jesus is preaching this message. He is sitting up on what is called the Mount of Beatitudes, and in uh, Israel, in that area, there is this mount area. It's not a, not a mountain, but it is a mound that is there. And out in front of it, there's some pasture land, and down at the bottom is the Sea of Galilee. And it could be that at this time, the, the fishermen are coming home with their catches from the night, and they are crating their fish. And so maybe Jesus is sitting there and he's looking down on the Sea of Galilee and he's watching the fishermen. They are taking out their fish. They have a wood crate and they put a layer of salt in that crate and then a layer of fish and then a layer of salt and a layer of fish and a layer of salt. And then they take the top and they tack it back on. Now, it could be that Jesus is watching this take place. And then he turns to the disciples and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt. When he says that, that is exclusive. It is emphatic. When he said you, it is emphatic, meaning you and you alone are the salt. You live in a world that is corrupting, and you and you alone are the preservative. There is none but you. That is always a challenge to me. This sermon is a challenge to me, and I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I know that we live in a world that is corrupt, and Jesus said to us, you are the preservative in that world, and you and you alone exclusively are the preservative in a world of corruption. And yet there is a tendency, certainly, that I understand to withdraw from that world, and yet if we do, where is the preservative? We want to, for instance, withdraw from the public education system, and when we do, then I have to ask the question, then where is the preservative in the education system? We want to withdraw from politics because it is a dirty business. And I'm not going to get involved in that as a Christian. Then let me ask you, where is the preservative in that world? We have a tendency to withdraw from art. We, we want to withdraw from the arts and all of that because that sometimes can be a corrupt group. But then where is the preservative? You see, when Jesus said, 
the world is corrupting and you and you alone are the salt, then, friends, I have a problem with us withdrawing from the world because if we do, then there is no preservative there. You are the salt exclusively. There is none but you. Not only is salt exclusive, it is also unique. There's nothing that tastes like salt. There was a Sunday school teacher who asked the question in her class, Can someone tell me what salt tastes like? Well, there's a little boy lifted his hand. And she said, What does it taste like? And he said, Sweat. There is nothing that tastes like salt but salt. So Jesus said, you and you alone are the salt. You are the preservative in this corrupt world. That is true exclusively and that is true uniquely. Well, why did Jesus use salt? When he said, you are the salt of the earth, why did he use salt? Why did he use chocolate? You are the chocolate of the Or why did he use sugar? You are the sugar of the world. But he said salt. Why? Well, I think there are probably several reasons. One is because it is a timeless illustration. For every gallon of seawater, there is a quarter pound of salt. So we are never going to be without the understanding of this analogy that he gave. So it is, it is a timeless illustration. Also, salt is known as a pure substance. In fact, Barclay wrote, the Romans said that salt was the purest of all things because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. And because they considered it to be pure, the purest of substances, then they offered it to their gods. Christians are to be pure. You're to be the standard of purity in this world. Do you understand that? That in this world that is corrupting, you and you alone are the standard of purity. So one of the reasons he chose it probably was because it was known as a pure substance. Another reason is because it flavors. Most of us reach for a fork before we do, I mean for salt before we do a fork. And, and, and that's what he's saying about you. He's saying that you are to give flavor to life. Barclay wrote, Christianity is to life what salt is to food. Christianity lends flavor to life. Do you? Man, I'm afraid some of you are on a bland diet. Do you understand that as a Christian, you're supposed to bring flavor? I mean, I look at some of you. I look at Zella out there. Goodness, she brings flavor. But I think had Jesus been talking about you, Zella, he'd probably said, you are the nut of the world. And then Catherine, and there's some others around. I, I mean, I look at you, you just bring flavor to life. That's what, but unfortunately, not all Christians do. Unfortunately, not all Christians bring a lot of flavor to life. Julian, the emperor of Rome, said, Have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all. They brood their lives away unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. Isn't that an indictment from Julian? Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I might have entered the ministry 
if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote in his diary, I have been to church today, and I'm not depressed. Well, that's a victory, I guess. I've been to church today, and I'm not depressed. You see, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, in part that means you are to bring flavor to life. You are to be the spice of life. You are to flavor life. Another reason, perhaps, is because it requires little. Chuck Swindoll said that salt is to be shaken, not poured. It doesn't take a lot of it. And contrary to what Satan would tell us, it doesn't take many to make a difference in this world. When Abraham was praying for Sodom, you recall perhaps the prayer. and He said, Lord, if, if there are 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And God said, I will. And Abraham said, uh, Lord, now that I've started speaking, if, if there are 40 righteous, would you spare it? And God said, yes. And he said, Lord, if there are 30, would you spare it? And yes. Did you know he got all the way down to 10? Lord, if there are just 10 righteous and all of Sodom, will you spare it? And God said, yes, I will. doesn't take much. When Gideon was putting together his army to go against the Midianites, he began with 32,000. And when the Lord began paring that group down, he ended up with 300. It didn't take much. Folks, it doesn't take a lot, but it takes us being the salt. But then there's a warning, and maybe this is the reason that we don't have more impact than we do in verse number 13. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And what they did with salt when this happened to it is made roads out of it. And so he says that it's not good for anything other than to make roads with. Now, what causes salt to lose its value? Well, if it becomes mixed with something else, for instance, if water gets in it, then it's it's no good as a seasoning anymore. If some other impurity gets in it, then it loses its value as a seasoning. And the same thing is true with you and with me. When we become mixed with the world, then we lose our value to God. When people look at us and they don't see the Beatitudes in us, they don't see those things that are described there, but instead they can't tell any difference between us and the world, then we lose our effectiveness. And so when it's mixed, it loses its value. Or when it's in the wrong place. If you make ice cream, you know that you put the canister in the thing and you put ice around it and then you put salt in it, ice cream salt around it. And it causes the ice cream to freeze faster. But what happens when the salt gets inside the canister? Ruins the ice cream. has to be in the right place. And folks, you and I need to be in the right place. As believers, as followers of Christ, we need to be in the right place doing the right things. That's the reason that I think that it is so important that you give a testimony on Sunday morning when your neighbor looks out the window and sees you going off to church. Then you're giving a testimony to them. It is important that we are in the right place doing the right things. Jesus said, you are the salt. 
to the disciples and to us, you are in a corrupting world, and you are the salt. Exclusively, there is no salt but you. Uniquely, you flavor life. And then he continues in verse number 14, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, it is one of those statements which should always have its effect upon us of making us lift up our heads, causing us to realize once more what a remarkable and glorious thing it is to be a Christian. Now, why is it so significant that Jesus said to you and to the disciples that you are the light of the world? Because he is then comparing you to himself. Because he is the light of the world. So Jesus said, you are the light of the world. The implication is that the world is in darkness, which is interesting because the world likes to glory in its enlightenment. The world likes to tell us how brilliant it is. And so in medical science, it has allowed us to live longer, but doesn't give us any reason to live. Science has been able to harness atomic power, but man can't control himself. So man sees himself as being enlightened, and yet the truth is man has no answers to life. Philosophy has questions, but it really doesn't have answers. Dr. Julian Huxley concluded that there is no God, and after he concluded there is no God, he said that life is without purpose. Of course that's our conclusion apart from God. What is the purpose if there is no God? If there is no God, what is your purpose for being? Science has improved our lives, but it does not answer the basic questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? What am I doing here? Where am I going? Science does not answer that. Politics doesn't have the answer. I don't care who your candidate is. They don't have the answer whether they are Democrats or Republicans, whether they are socialists or capitalists. They don't have the answers to life. Jesus said, you are the light. And again, that is emphatic. And it literally means you and you alone are the light. There's no light but you. We live in a world of darkness. And Jesus said to his followers, you are the light. There is no light but you. Well, if we are the light, shouldn't we shine? This means yes. I mean, if we're, if we're the light, should, why? Let me give you three reasons. First of all, because that's what light's supposed to do. Light's supposed to shine. I like the story about the old country church. And they were having their business meetings, so it must have been a Baptist church. And someone made the motion that they buy a new chandelier for their church. Well, there was one old fellow, the patriarch of the church, he stood up and said, I'm opposed to that. They said, why are you opposed to it? He said, well, I'll give you three reasons. Number one, we don't need it. Number two, we don't have the money. Number three, there ain't nobody here who can play one if we get it. Light is supposed to shine. And my friend, you haven't been fired up to fizzle out. You are the light of the world. There is no light other than you. Now, granted, 
Our wattage might be different. There are some of you, maybe you're a 15 water and others, maybe you're a 25 watts and someone else is a 100 watts and some of you are, you know, you're a spotlight. I mean, you really shine bright. But let me ask you a question. You say, well, you know, I don't have much wattage. I don't put out much. Let me ask you a question. When you get up late at night to go to the bathroom, what is the most important light in your house? The night light. It doesn't make any difference if you have 25 watts or 100 watt. The thing that is important is that you shine. And that's what Jesus said, that you are to shine. You're meant to shine. If we are the light, you are meant to shine. You're meant to shine. And then it's ridiculous not to. Look at verse 15. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. You don't take a light and put a box over it. You don't light a light and put a box over it. He says, that's ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous for us not to shine. Do you cover your light? I mean, you are the light of the world. Let me ask you, are you shining or do you cover it somehow? Are you covering the light that God has given to you? And then it's useless if it doesn't shine. If we have a bulb that's burned out, what do we do with it? We discard it. Because it is useless. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, There is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I mean by that, one who has the name, but not the quality of a Christian. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not shining, do you understand then you are useless to God because He expects you to shine? You're useless to the church because the church needs you to shine. And you're useless to the world. You're like a stoplight that's not working. We are supposed to shine. Well, how do you shine? Do you want to shine? I mean, as a child of God, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Do you want to shine? How do you do it? I was thinking about that. When I was a boy, we'd go to my grandparents sometimes. And do you, do you remember... Uh, when maybe you would go to your grandparents or some of you, your great-great-grandparents, but you, you'd go to your grandparents or somewhere and they had those lamps, those oil lamps. Okay, I, I don't know if I'm just talking to myself or... All right. Well, my grandparents had those oil lamps and I began to think about that. Now, what is necessary for that thing to, to shine? Well, first of all, it has to be lit. I remember my grandmother, my granddad, they, they would strike a match and they would light it. But it, first of all, had to be lit. Now, folks, spiritually speaking, if you're going to shine, you have to be lit. And I don't mean that in that other way. I'm talking about you need to be lit. That means that you're to have, have Christ inside. You can't shine unless you have Christ inside. So first of all, you have to be lit. Secondly, you need to be set. Now, they would light that lamp, and then they would put it up on the mantle, or they would put it somewhere so it could give out the most light. So you need to be set where you can shine most effectively. It's my belief that the place where you shine the brightest is within the area of your spiritual giftedness. If you are a believer, then God has gifted you. The Holy Spirit has given you certain spiritual gifts. And if you're going to shine the brightest, then that is where you shine. Shine in the area where God has gifted you, so you need to be set. And then you need to be fed. 
that lamp, would, after a while, would have to have some more oil put in it. So it had to be fed. And as a believer, you have to be fed. What are you fed with? Oil? No. The Word of God. As you spend time in the Word of God, as you spend time in prayer, as you spend time in worship with the people of God, as you spend time in conversation with the people of God, speaking about spiritual things, then your spirit is fed. So the lamp has to be fed. Something else I notice is that occasionally the wick had to be trimmed. Now, if you are familiar with those old lamps at all, you know that the, the top of the wick would get crusted, and they'd come in and clip that off so that it could continue to shine. Well, that happens to us, doesn't it? I mean, as we go through life, sometimes we, we get that crust on us from the world. And the Holy Spirit has to come in and prune that that causes us to be dim. Now, what's the result of shining? When you shine, what's the result? If we are shining, what's the result? Well, when we shine, we guide. Light guides. I know that you have had those times when you've flown into Columbia at night, and whenever you're coming in, you see the lights that are lining the runway. It guides the plane in safely. That's what happens when you are shining. Then, then we guide. We guide people to safety. We guide them to the Lord. Something else that light does is to warn. When there's a pothole out in the street, they'll put lights around it to warn the people to stay, stay away from that, that there's danger there. When we are shining, that's what we should be doing. We should be guiding people to Jesus. We should be warning people about, uh, about danger that's fine. And something else that light does is to extinguish the darkness. Some of us enjoy more cursing the darkness rather than turning on the light. But that's what happens when you turn on the light, the darkness flees. And when you shine, the darkness flees. Now, we see the right way to shine there in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, let's look at the analogies. If salt is doing what it's supposed to do, it calls no attention to itself. I mean, if you have the right amount of salt in something that you have prepared, then no one comes in and says, man, this tastes salty. It doesn't call attention to itself. It flavors. Light does not call attention to itself. When you came in this building, I doubt that very many of you came in, except for Steve, and Steve does this, but many of you looked up at the lights and said, look at those lights. Steve always comes in and looks at that one's not burning, and that one's not burning, and that one's not burning. But light doesn't call attention to itself. Now, the point here is that as you function as a Christian, as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it is not to call attention to you. We don't serve to call attention to ourselves. Our goal is to glorify the Lord. It is not to call attention to ourselves, but to glorify Him. Let me conclude. How can we apply this? Well, I would imagine today some of you need to be lit. Now, the reason that you're not shining is because you have no light inside. And so some of you need to be lit. You need to know Jesus Christ as Savior. You need to be born again. 
because you can't shine without the light inside. And so some probably need to be lit. Maybe some of you need to be trimmed. You have allowed the world to come in and, and it's crusted over the wick. And so today you need to ask the Lord to remove that. Ask the Lord to remove that that is keeping you from shining brightly. And some of you need to be set. You need to be in the right place. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why someone would be a Christian but not want to identify themselves with the people of God. You need to be in a church. You need to be a part of it. You need to be involved in it. So, do you need to be lit? Then trust Jesus. Do you need to be trimmed? Then dedicate a new year life to Him. And do you need to be set? Then our doors are open to you today. We'd love to have you as a part of this church family. Our Father in God, thank you for reminding us in your word that we live in a world that is corrupting. And we are the salt. Thank you for reminding us that we live in a world of darkness and we are the light. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that when people see us, that we might live in such a way that we glorify the name of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. An invitation will be extended. If you would like to commit your life to Jesus, come today. The staff will be here to receive you. If you want to just come and pray, you do that. If you'd like to join our church, we'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as they sing. You come, I'll greet you, should you do.